Uh, I'm just here to tell you, I don't know who picked the songs this week, but they did a good job. Those are some good ones right there, brothers and sisters. If you got your Bible, make your way over to Matthew chapter 8, the Gospel of Matthew in the 8th chapter. That's where we'll be, in case you've forgotten. That's the first book of the New Testament. I know it's been a while, but we're back, and we're going to stay back for a while. So I'm looking forward to that. Well, um, it's not there anymore, but there was, back in the day, there was a bench at this place, this is park in Savannah called Chippewa Square. And it was a bench that was out in front, right there in the center. And people would come and sit on that bench while they were waiting to get on the bus. And, and back in, there was this one particular day where there was this guy sitting on the bench. He was a pretty outgoing guy, a pretty talkative guy. And he would just tell stories. I mean, every, he, he couldn't say hello without telling stories. He'd say things like, Hello, and then try to offer people a piece of chocolate. Next thing you know, he's talking about how he got his first pair of shoes, and he's talking about how he played for Bear Bryant. He's talking about how he fought in Vietnam. He's talking about how he ran across the country, how he got in on the ground level of Apple Computer Company. You know, like, but you see, he did that. And there's some people who, who heard him, and they were standing there talking to him, and they were like, Man, I wonder what's going on. Because me and you watch, it's obviously like 90% of the movie Forrest Gump, right? But, but me and you watch that, and you can make whatever you want to of the movie. It, it seems pretty brilliant to me the way the story is kind of told. We get this elaborate kind of detail in the background that helps us track along. But I just want you to remember, like at Chippewa Square that day, standing there waiting on the bus, there were some people who heard this cat talking, and they were like, I wonder what the point is. Like, what's the point? Because you can't answer a question without getting a story. You and I know people like that right now, don't you? There's some people who if you went to ask a very simple, straightforward, direct, you would get an elaborate story and you're going to be thinking like, what's the point? Or is there a point? Right? That, that's how some of that works. Well, uh, the reason that I, I tell you that is we've reached a transition point in the gospel of Matthew. Now, I'll just track back with you. Matthew's walking us through that. Chapter of Actions there. Chapter of the Baptist, and specifically Jesus and, and John the Baptist overlap, the interactions there. Chapter 4 is all about Jesus' preparation for ministry, and then Jesus' ministry begins. And I just want to remind you, we got this summary statement. It's a really convenient summary statement. In chapter 4, verse 23, and, and here's what it said. And he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So if you got your listening ears on right there, if you flipped over there and saw it, you notice there's two parts in that summary. You've got teaching and you've got, you've got healing. If you were here at all during October or November as we walked through chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you got to hear really clearly Jesus' teaching. He's been teaching. Five through seven is really one big sermon. It's got one central proposition where Matthew is trying to show you really clearly like Jesus's definition of what it means to follow me. What it means to live the good life is that you would live unto God, that everything about you will be sold out, aimed at the glory of God, that you would live all of your life before the face of God, because guess what? You really do. Five through seven, Jesus teaching. If you're an attentive listener, you read 423, and so you'll know there's a healing component. Like, we're, we're waiting on the healing component to get here. And so, here, here you go. 
Here it comes. Matthew's going to give you the healing component this morning. We're going to be in chapter 8, and he's going to give you the healing component this morning. He's going to tell you a story about Jesus' healing. And so since he's going to tell you a story or give you a narrative about Jesus' healing, just like you were sitting on the bench talking to Forrest Gump, just go ahead and ask. What's the point? Be on the lookout for the point. Here you go. I'm going to read it to you. When he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant, and he's lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of the sinner Peter's house at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were opposed by demons, oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even as we read it, it speaks to us. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit who inspired it is present with us this moment. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do your work in us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I, before we dive into exposition this morning, just want to clarify uh, a couple of things. Uh, I'm, I'm your pastor. And part of my responsibility as your pastor is not just to feed you. It is my responsibility to do that. I enjoy that. I delight in doing that. I love to teach. It's really fun stuff for me. But if we think about a pastor and pastor having the role of a shepherd and shepherd pertaining to the sheep, like part of the pastor's duty is to guard the sheep. Play a little bit of defense. Guard, like shoot the wolves. Don't let the wolves get, get the sheep. So I just, to that end, I just need to clarify a, a couple of things for you this morning, help you think through a few things. Uh, I said it before, I'll say it again, it really is true. We're reading a story this morning, 8, 1 through 17. It's a story, maybe more accurately, it's three stories that Matthew has arranged to, to give us one central thrust. We're going to find out eventually what's the point. Like we're, working, we're working to that. But as we're dealing with these stories, I just want you to know that, that they're true stories. Like it is a, it's a true story. Now when I say that, I don't mean that it's a forensic story. 
Here's what I mean by that. I don't mean it's been told at the level of detail you would get if somebody followed Jesus around with a video camera and handed it to you. It's not a movie script. That's not the type of story that it is. And, and here's what I mean by that. I'll show you this middle story that we just read right here with the centurion. You can go home. You can hang out in Luke chapter 7 this afternoon. And what you're going to notice if you go there is Luke tells this story, same story, but he tells it with delegates being sent from the centurion to Jesus. So it's not a direct interaction in Luke's account with the centurion and Jesus. Luke has the centurion sending people to talk to Jesus. And you say, oh, whoa, what's going on there? Like, look. Here's what you got to get. It's not a forensic story. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they have not, in the way they've recorded the gospels, intended to give you a video report with that type of level of detail, uh, every motion picture detail you'd want filled in. They haven't tried to do that for you. And look, that's not the point. Matthew is trying to show you who Jesus is. That's, it's not the point that you'd have a forensic movie cinema-ready script to just go and roll with. And I, again, I can prove that to you. This is why every time, every time somebody tries to make a motion picture representation of one of the gospel accounts, whether it's a TV series, whether it's a movie, doesn't matter what it is, there's a big kerfuffle about it. Because guess what? The people who are making it have to take these big interpretive liberties, which is a fancy way of saying they got to play kind of fast and loose with a lot of stuff to make it all fit. And what we end up with is like a, huh, that doesn't seem, we, we, that's not in the Bible. Where'd that come from? What's going on? Right, because it's not a movie script. Matthew wants you to know who Jesus is. And so he's decided to tell this story to make the point. He's cut out the middleman. He wants you to know the nuts and bolts of it. There's a centurion that wanted Jesus to heal his servant. That's what you need to know. To get his point. So if you read that in a way that you're trying to say, we don't, we don't really know, this doesn't really make sense, we're going to listen to these liberals tell us that these two things don't line. No, you're missing the point. Matthew's got a point, and the point is not that you would take this and make it a movie. It's a, it's a story. And it's a true story. And I mean that it's a true story in the sense it ain't a mythological story. Over the course of the last 200 years, people have said really ridiculous things like, we got to demystify the Bible. We live in this present rationalistic age and we just, we don't run, there's all this supernatural stuff in the Bible, all this supernatural stuff in the Gospels and it just kind of stretches the way we tend to think as these modern, sophisticated, rationalistic people and so we take this, we gotta take our modern, rationalistic, this is the way the world works and it makes sense to us type lens and we're gonna put it on the Bible and we're gonna make the Bible fit our mold. For the last 200 years, people have been doing that. They'll say stuff like, we're just too sophisticated now. People don't believe that type of stuff. It doesn't sell anymore. Young people aren't going to church. I literally had a lady tell me that yesterday. That's my favorite line ever in the history of the world. Young people might not go to your church, but young people go to Grace Chapel Baptist Church. We don't have a problem with that. And guess what? We haven't sold out to make it happen. There's actually some young people that come here because we believe something and we're willing to say we believe it, right? So you you don't have to sell out to win the world. It's not how this thing works. But does that sound like familiar to you? This is, people don't believe this. We got to round off the edges. We got to stop saying the Bible doesn't doesn't condemn these cultural sins. We got to that, brothers and sisters. That's happening. That's happening right now. 
I'm really sad to have to tell you this, but it's happening like right now, still in our camp, in the midst of people who are still trying to masquerade like they're evangelicals. They got big churches, they got big YouTube platforms, you got access to their podcast, so that's out there. Like the offer that we're going to try to demystify the Bible and take a step back, it's out there, it's available, you can go home, get on YouTube, and you'll, you will be offered it. And so here's, here's my, my statement that I just want to make is your pastor, that offer's there, Don't take it. If we try to take the supernatural out of the Bible, I just want you to be aware we don't end up having a Bible. And if we don't have a Bible, we don't know enough about who Jesus is to get us to God. And if we don't know enough about who Jesus is, we could not and never could be reconciled to God. There are there are loads of people who have walked that well-worn path throughout history and they've tried to do the whole, I'm going to get rid of the parts that, that really, the parts of Christianity that don't make sense to me or that stretch me or that challenge me or that don't fit into my mold. They've tried to do that and say, we're going to get rid of that and we're going to hold on to Christ. And what happens every single time is they get to the end of the line somewhere and they realize by the very end that their version of Christ who's left is a false Christ. There's not enough truth left in him to save them from their sins or make a very meaningful impact on their lives. The demystification of the Bible is a slippery slope that will lead to the pits of hell and it will lead to the pits of hell for you if you adopt the offer that's being handed to you by the people who are trying to hijack the Christian faith on YouTube, on your TV, on podcasts for you today. If you got questions, comments, need follow up with that, want to know what's going on with some person, ask me. I'll be happy to let you know. But that's my statement. Matthew chapter 8. It's a story. It's, it's, a, it's a true story. It's not a mythological story. It's a story about Jesus. And it's a story with a point. So back to the question I want us to ask. Hey, what's the point? Scene number 1. Verses 1 through 4. When he, Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said nothing, and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them, brothers and sisters, what is the point? The point's pretty simple. That ain't me. That ain't me and that ain't you. Like, that is not how our wills work. Do you hear that? What you just got in verses 1 through 4 is that Jesus has a determinative will. When he wants things to happen, they happen. That, that's not how it works for me. That's not how it works with you, I presume. Let me know if it's different. But there's lots of things I want to see happen that ain't happened. That's probably good for some people, okay? But Jesus is not like that. Jesus has a determinative will. He, he's walking down the mountain. He comes down the mountain. And as he's coming down the mountain, here comes this leper. What, what's a leper? Leper's kind of a big, general, overarching category for this whole host of skin issues, skin diseases. Back in that time, something's wrong with your skin. We don't know what it is. We call you a leper. They weren't walking around scrolling on WebMD. They didn't have like a Ask Dr. Oz segment on their local cable network. So like they're just a leper. Just call them a leper. And here's the problem. Like that was really inconvenient. 
Because not only like whatever was going on with your skin, you got to deal with that. It might hurt, it might itch, who knows. But you got that going on. And then Old Testament law, Leviticus 13, is going to look at you and say, and that means you can't do nothing. It's got restrictions about where you can go, where you can't go, what you can do, what you can't do, what you can touch, what you can't touch, how long you got to be here, what you got to do to get purified. All these things, it's super duper inconvenient. And so in this leprosy deal, when we're looking at a leper, we're looking at somebody who's having to live like they're an outcast in society. So Jesus is coming down from the mountain, and here comes this societal outcast. And he walks up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. It appears to me he's, he's part of this group we saw in 7, 28 and 29, that they, they knew, they were able to tell from Jesus' teaching, like, he's speaking like he's got authority. And this leper concludes, like, if Jesus has got authority, he can help me. If he would want to help me, if he would want to heal me, he can. So Jesus says, I will, I, I am willing, I do desire that, I am willing to do that. And he reaches out and touches him. Now, again, you, you and I, we, we struggle because we're a long, long way down the line here. But like, what just happened? Really big deal. Because what you would have expected to happen there under the old covenant law is that when Jesus reaches out his hand to touch this leper, what you would have expected to happen is by the time Jesus draws his hand back in, he's unclean. Because this leper's unclean, and you would have expected, per Jewish law, that when Jesus touches him, the uncleanliness of the leper spreads to Jesus. This ain't the old covenant anymore, brothers and sisters. Jesus is so pure, Jesus is so clean, that when he reaches out and touches the leper, instead of the leper's uncleanness being transferred to him, Jesus has transferred health to the leper. He's healed him. He's made him clean. It says immediately the problem's been resolved. And so then you get the follow-up here in verse 4. Jesus said to him, see that you go and say nothing to anyone. Now, you're going to see that phrase come up a few more times in the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things you got to keep in mind is Jesus has a very specific mission. And Jesus is pacing himself for that mission. By this point in time, there's already some notoriety surrounding Jesus in the eyes of the Jewish leadership. And so Jesus is not interested in having a popularity contest. This isn't his thing. It's a good thing even for us as his church to remember, right? Like numbers for the sake of numbers aren't always a good thing. There's a difference between numbers and good numbers. And Jesus was able to keep that perspective there. We should keep that perspective there as well. So, but then he says, so don't go proclaim this, but I want you to go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So, so here's what I want you to know, notice there. Like these priests who Jesus just dispatched this guy and sent him to and said, go see these people. Like they did this for a living. Again, go read Leviticus 13, 14. It was their job to look at lepers and decide whether or not they had leprosy anymore. Are you clean? Are you unclean? Have the spots changed? Is the rash spread? What, like they got to make all these determinations. And so Jesus sends the guy there to people who were professional skin examiners and the skin examiners are going to accept his offering the point is like you don't like jesus has healed this guy jesus in in this instance has overcome leprosy old testament's not expecting that to happen new testament says here it is 
It's right here. The point we get, Jesus' will is determinative. Brothers and sisters, is that comforting you? Like if you're really a brother, you're really a sister, you really belong to the Lord, doesn't it comfort you to know that whatever Jesus wills is? His will is determinative. He has power, and just because he, he wants it or ordains it, guess what? It comes to pass. The Bible's very clear that Jesus is God, and the Bible gives us very clear statements about God. Isaiah 46, I'm God, and there's no other. I'm God, and there's no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Jesus, that's who you belong to. His will determines things. Romans 8.28 really is true for you. Like all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Of course they do because his will is determinative. What he desires, what he ordains, that is what is. I know right now in this room, like straight up, there are some of you who are going through hard stuff. You're having a hard time. You're mourning. You've been sick, and it seems like you've been sick for months. You're pouring out all types of emotional energy. Some of you are pouring out all types of physical energy. It's a hard time of year for a lot of folks. It has been. It will continue to be. I just want you to know that if you belong to the Lord, you belong to the one who runs the world. You have a relationship with him. He wills, and it comes to pass. Brothers and sisters, that ain't me, and that ain't you. But it is Jesus. And that's at least part of Matthew's point. Scene number two, verse five. When he entered Capernaum, the centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this. He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So, uh, Jesus, here he comes into Capernaum. Again, think, I want you to think about what's the point. What is the point? And the point, again, is going to be like, it's in us. Not only is my will not determined, my word isn't determined. Like, I don't say things and they exist the way I want them to exist. Jesus doesn't have that problem. When he says things, they happen. His words do things. So here he comes to Capernaum. This is his home. We learned that already. Chapter 4, Jesus set up home base in Capernaum. We're about to see Jesus in Peter's house here in a minute. His house is in Capernaum, right? So th there's the connection. He's coming to Capernaum, back to home base. And as he's coming back to home base, here comes Centurion. 
Centurion, we know by his title, he's a leader. He's an, he's, an, he's an official in some capacity. Not only that, he's a military man, and he's a Roman military man. His name tells us that he's over 100 people. He's got 100 men who deport directly to him. Relatively important, prominent position in Roman society. And since it is a relatively important, prominent position in Roman society, guess what? He's got a servant. He's got a servant who's, who's paralyzed and suffering, is in need of help. And Centurion, for, for whatever reason, I don't, I don't know what account he's heard of Jesus, but he comes to the conclusion, like, hey, Jesus can do something about this. So, so he says to Jesus, like, look, here's what's going on. I got my servant. He's paralyzed. He's at home. He's suffering. And Jesus says, even without being directly asked, he says, he says I'll, I'll come heal him. And then the strangest thing happens. Centurion says, no, Jesus, don't do that. Like, Jesus, I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy for you to come do that. But here's what I do know, Jesus. Like, I do know, being, a, being the centurion that I am, I know a little bit about how authority works. I'm a man under authority. Like, there's people over me. And when they tell me to do stuff, like, that's what I have to do. And that's what I, when they say stuff, I do it. That's how that works. But I'm also a man who has authority. And so I say things. And these hundred guys that I'm sovereign over, guess what? When I say go, they go. When I say come, they come. When I say do this, they do it. I know how this works, Jesus. When somebody has authority, their words do things to the people they have authority over. And Jesus, I know a little bit about you. I know that you have authority. I know that you've got authority even in the scope, even in the realm, over my servant. Even though I'm this Roman guy, I know that you have authority over my servant who's laying back at the house. And so guess what? I know that since you have authority and, and you, you, you use your words and they do things, like you can just say it. And my servant, servant will be healed. Which leads Jesus to say, obviously, like, look, that's faith. He understands my authority at a level that even my own people don't understand. Like they're, trying to, they're about trying to kill me for my authority and the Romans submitting to it. The Romans acknowledging it. The Romans saying, yeah, you're right. You do have authority. And so Jesus says, like, look, this is the type of faith that is going to take Gentiles and put them at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it's the, it's the, the absence of that faith is what's going to take sons who are supposed to be my people and exclude them from the kingdom of God because they want to get there by works and they don't want to get there by faith. They don't want to turn from their sin and trust me. They want to do it themselves. And so these people who have this faith are going to be at the table. And these people who try to do it themselves ain't going to be at the table. So Jesus clarifies that there for you. And then 13, says, go and let it be done. In response to your faith, as you've believed, in accordance with your faith, like let it be done and the servants healed at that very moment. Brothers and sisters, like that ain't me. That ain't you. Our words don't do those type of things. Jesus' words do. Jesus' words are authoritative. Does that challenge you? Does it challenge you that Jesus' words are authoritative and that Jesus' words have authority? Jesus says in John chapter 12, I'll start in verse 47. He says, hey, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And you say, wow, that's great. I'm off the hook. That's great. This is great. 48, uh, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words, 
he's got a judge already. Like, I, I, I don't have to be active right now because like, he's already got a judge and here's the judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' words have authority. I want to know, like, have you received them? Have you received Jesus' words? And I'm not trying to make you like a red-letter Christian and say, like, we just, like, it's bigger than that, right? The, the whole Bible, in a real sense, is Jesus' word. Like, his Holy Spirit inspired the whole thing. So, like, I'm talking about the whole thing. And I just want to know, like, have you received this word? Step one is, is obviously going to be... Uh, <laughs> Do you know them? Do you know, do you know Jesus' words? It's going to be really hard to call yourself a Christian and not read your Bible because it's going to be really hard for you to profess love for someone you don't really know. You wouldn't do that with your spouse. You would not try to run your marriage off of getting together on Sunday morning and talking for a few minutes. Really love my spouse. That one conversation we have on Sunday morning is great. Like, no, <laughs> you're gonna, I'm hoping you're gonna be dialoguing with your spouse, having a dynamic relationship with your spouse, talking to your spouse frequently. So if you would hear from Jesus, if you wanna know what he's got to say, like, read his word. Step one's gonna have to be, do you know uh, the word? I know there's some of you who are here who are just starting out your journey with the Bible. I know that, I just wanna encourage you. That's great. Like here, you got, you're getting 17 verses today. That's a really good start. And I'm not going to encourage, like, you, you don't have to set the world on fire with a brand new Bible reading plan. Like, there's some of you who are like, it's January 7th. I'm already, I was supposed to be in the middle of Genesis, and I'm in, like, chapter 3. Like, okay, I got you. Like, that's okay. Here's just practically what I want to encourage you with. If you're here and you're just starting out your, your Bible journey, you're just going to start for the first time in your life trying to be a consistent Bible reader, here's what I want you to do. We're going to be, we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 8 next week. So this week, why don't you just take every day, every morning, be consistent, just take a little section and work your way there. So for example, tomorrow morning, you get up, you read verses 1 through 4 again, and you leave a little bit of time to think about that, pray about that, what do I, what do I need to do? Tuesday morning, you get up, read 5 through 13, think about that, pray about that, see if there's something for there for you to apply, and, and you keep going. Just keep doing that section by section, work your way through Matthew 8 next week, You'll come back. You'll know what's going on. You'll be able to retain some of what's going on in Matthew 8. I, I just want to encourage you to do that. If you need a Bible to do that with, just tell me when you leave. I'll find you one. If I give it to you and you don't like it, tell me. I'll buy you another one and give it to you next week. That's great. Because I'm convinced these words matter, and they have power, and they have authority. I know that because the Bible says that. I know that because I've seen them have authority in my own life. This is how I came to know the Lord. So if you will pick up a Bible and read it with a little bit of discipline, I'm utterly convinced you will come to find that these words have power in your life as well. But then there are others of you. There are others of you who, who, who aren't starting your Bible journey afresh, who've been here for a while, who've been in church for a long time, who've been handling the Bible for a really long time, and you've got to confront Jesus in Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Familiarity with the word is one thing. Obedience to the word is a very different thing. 
the, the Bible has not been given to us. The words of the Lord have not been given to us for us to mind them, to figure out what's going to look good on our Facebook wall. It's not for us to figure out which we're going to put, put on, our, on our Instagram bio, what our new tattoo is going to be. I'm, I'm not, don't, and if you're like a verse poster, don't hear me hating on that. I'm just saying the, the words we've been given aren't simply for us to admire. They're also for us to obey. In the very same way, like they're not words that are given to us so that we can sharpen ourselves to win our next argument or to figure out what we're, who we're going to go on the attack with or so we look like we're really smart, knowledgeable people in our next Bible study. That's not it. We're, if that's how we're approaching the Bible, we're missing it. Jesus' words are authoritative. They're to be obeyed. That's what they really are. And I just, I just want to ask you, like, are they authoritative for you? They are authoritative. They look like they're authoritative Scene three, we'll wrap it up. Verse 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. What's the point? Hold on a second. Just hold your horses. I know y'all have been asking me that all morning. Just hold your horses just for a second. Here's what just happened. So Jesus goes into Peter's house. When he gets into Peter's house, which is in Capernaum, right there beside the synagogue, he walks in. His mother-in-law is sick. And just like we saw him do with the leper, he actually physically goes, touches his mother-in-law, and immediately, just like with the leper, mother-in-law is good to go. She's healed. And so to show that, Matthew puts special emphasis here. He shows you that not only was she healed, like she got up and started working again. Like she's healed, healed. She's good to go. And that's not all, because by that point in time, people have come to understand not only does Jesus teach with authority, like Jesus has authority to heal. And so this crowd that's been following him gets wise to that, and they say, man, we got a lot of people. I mean, you, you would have people too, right? Like, let's take everybody who needs healing and let's take them to Jesus. And they start doing that. And guess what? They're doing that. And while they're doing that, Jesus heals them. He's healing them all. There are people who, who are oppressed by demons. He's casting demons out with a word. He's saying it and it's happening. That's what just went on. What's the point? What is the point? Verse 17, you don't have to wonder. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. And some of you who know Isaiah 53, verse 4 pretty well, they're pumping the brakes and saying, that's not what my Isaiah 53, verse 4 says. Matthew doesn't know Isaiah 53, verse 4, like I do. That'd be correct. Matthew knows Isaiah 53, verse 4, way better than you do. And what he's just done is Isaiah 53, verse 4 is written in Hebrew. The document he's writing, Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, is written in Greek. And so Matthew has just taken and made his own translation. It's a pretty literal translation of, of Isaiah 53, 4, right there for you into the Greek in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. And folks who've translated my Bible have tried to keep the fact that he did it that way. Matthew's very interested in the way that this is written because it's showing Jesus is the Messiah. This fulfills the word of the Lord. 
His point, Matthew's point is Jesus is the Messiah, and you can tell that Jesus is the Messiah because of what you've just seen Jesus do. He's taken the people's illnesses. He's borne their diseases. This is the point. It's not an entirely new point. It's somewhat of a new point because you've already seen this guy, Matthew, our evangelist Matthew. He's already told you. He started his gospel by saying, the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David. That's how it starts, David. Have you heard me say before, we're waiting on David? 2 Samuel 7, we're waiting on this one who's going to come from the line of David, who's going to sit on David's throne, who's going to rule and reign over God's people forever and ever and ever. We're waiting on him. And Matthew says, he's here. Next phrase, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Son of David, son of Abraham. Have you heard me say before, we're waiting on this one who's going to come from the line of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed according to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Like, and Matthew says, he's here. This is him. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Matthew's not content with that. Matthew wants you to know. Better Moses is here. Look out. Do you remember the flight to Egypt? He's running away from his evil king who's trying to kill all the babies. Does that remind you of anybody? He's going up to the mountain. He's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Does that remind you of anybody? Were you here from Matthew chapter 5? You've heard it said in the law of Moses, but guess what I say to you? Like, the better Moses is here. Here he comes. The son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Moses. He's a Messiah. And. The Messiah is the suffering servant. Maybe you were here, maybe you weren't here. Uh, we just wrapped up Isaiah. We, we went all the way through Isaiah on Wednesday nights in the beginning of December. And when you get to Isaiah 42, you're introduced to this idea of the suffering servant. And it's a theme that shows up throughout the rest of Isaiah. You're most familiar with all of 52 and 53. That's the passage we, we always preach at Easter. Very clearly showing us Jesus taking on our Sin, and that's where Matthew's placed it. Jesus fulfills chapter 53, verse 4. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And if he's the one who fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, then I just propose to you, surely he's the one who fulfills 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, he's the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he's come to reverse the curse. He's come to undo what Satan has ushered in. And I just want to say to you this morning, if you're excited about the fact that because of what Jesus has done for you, the fact that he went to the cross to take on the wrath of God for your sin in his body on the tree, that he might bring you to God and restore to you a right relationship with the Father and secure your inheritance in heaven, we ought to thank Jesus because he's the Messiah. And if you're excited that when you get your inheritance in heaven, there will no longer be death or mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, you can also thank Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, the one who makes all things new. Matthew wants you to know. That's the point. Let's pray with me.
Our Lord, uh, we do again thank you afresh for your word. We thank you that you don't leave us in confusion, but you tell us really clearly what you want us to know. Lord, it's my prayer that we would all know and trust the fact and treasure the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's come to reconcile us to you by grace through faith. And Lord, that we would respond to that by being comforted in the fact that your will determines all things and we would be challenged by the fact that your word is authoritative and demands obedience out of us. Lord, conform us to the image of your son because it brings you glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're just going to have a brief hymn of response. I'll be on the front row worshiping with, you, with y'all. If there's anything you'd like to pray with me about or talk to me about, I'd be happy to do that now.